So it's uh, welcome to Trackfest podcast number seven. Just welcome you into the show, those of you that are still with us. Um, I'm Douglas Robertson. And I'm Jane Ann Purdy. So what do we have for our eager listeners today? It's a bumper show today. We've got uh, My Lockdown Life from Laura Beth Salter from The She. Then we have our Moishes Fable from Phil Alexander. And then a very special interview um, by a guest correspondent, Sam Sweeney, who will be speaking to Laura Wilkie. And finally, our sugar story is James McIntosh. But first, we're going to hear from Dr Laurie Watson, who we spoke to back in April about um, the School of Scottish Studies archive and what's coming up in our rebellious truth lecture on Monday the 10th of May. Laurie Watson is an authority on contemporary music practice in Scotland. A fiddle player, singer and interpreter of Scots and traditional song, she is also a composer of note, as well as an experienced educator. She holds the first Artistic Research and Ethnomusicology Doctorate in Scotland and is a lecturer in Scottish Ethnology at the University of Edinburgh's Celtic and Scottish Studies. Thanks to Laurie's bright spark, we will be presenting our first ever Rebellious Truth Lecture in conjunction with the University as part of Edinburgh Tradfest. Hi Laurie, how are you doing? Hi Dana, I'm good, thanks. How are you? Oh, not so bad, not so bad. Are you down home in Portobello? Yes, still at the seaside. Uh-huh. Been a bit of a gift in these times. Yeah. Do you know when you might be getting back into university? Um, I think. Well, I mean, the message keeps changing, doesn't it? But um, they are planning for some on-campus teaching next semester, and I know that some of our researchers are back in the labs, and so I think they're just gradually increasing the folk that can get on campus. But um, no, I think there's probably a big pile of. Uh, uncollected post in my office (laughs) full of journals I should have read by now and yeah all sorts of stuff I've not been in since um I don't think I've been in the office since December 2019 wow that's quite a while yeah so Mm -hmm. we're not here to talk about that anyway but um, no (laughs) (laughs) what I'd like to talk about is something that we first talked about probably back in that sort of time, was to form this new partnership for Tradfest with your department at the university um, to, you know, found a kind of annual lecture, if you like. So can you tell me a little bit about your thoughts on that and what, you know, what you were hoping to achieve with uh, Rebellious Truth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So it's, uh, I'm quite new um, at Edinburgh Uni. And my background is really in the performance side of traditional arts and um, coming to Celtic and Scottish Studies and the School of Scottish Studies Archives at Edinburgh um, has been brilliant in lots of ways. And trying to figure out you know, what my role is in the department beyond ethnomusicology and in our contemporary times and with a real focus on traditional arts. Um, it had been on my mind um, where things need to go next, and um, and also looking back at the the beginnings of the School of Scottish Studies and some of the the key themes that they worked with, some of their their ideas, their ideals for the future, um, and wanting to tap into those aspects of what the school was and and what it could become, um, and I was really keen to establish an event which brought um, brought the artist's voice 
to the center mm-hmm. of our discussions considerations um and really uh provide yeah made a space to tap into that knowledge base which is in doing and considering really from a different perspective from an artist's perspective which I think has always been present in the School of Scottish Studies to an extent but we were um, in our kind of program of regular seminars there is an there is a bit of that Um, but in our annual annual lectures and annual events I felt that that voice was missing Um, and so, yeah, Rebellious Truth is an annual, hopefully an annual event, which is a lecture recital of sorts. So it, it will involve um, artistic work, new artistic work, artistic perspectives on key themes to do with traditional arts, Scottish heritage, um, and particularly with an emphasis on humanitarian themes so that could be the environment it could be equalities um, themes which are very very important to current society um, and themes and issues which our traditional arts and our um, our understanding and expressions over time as a community in Scotland um, themes which that material and, and those voices can really contribute to in ways that we haven't seen yet. So that's the idea yeah. behind the event. And you um, you chose someone to deliver the, the inaugural Rebellious Truth lecture who's been kind of sitting in the wings for a couple of years now waiting to do it. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about your choice? Of course, yeah. Um, and the, <laughs> yeah, I know it's, it has been postponed a little um, and... Thankfully, they're still with us. So um, after quite a bit of consideration, discussion with yourselves and other members of Celtic and Scottish Studies, um, we arrived at uh, Corrine Polwart for our first Rebellious Truth lecture. And um, Corrine is hugely influential in lots of different ways. But I think choosing Corrine for this first Rebellious Truth um, is important because it's not just her kind of wide experience and um, you know we felt that whatever way she wanted to approach this lecture whatever she would want to say would fit within the bounds of what we're trying to do um, but I think she's our, our main choice this this time round because of her her process and her um, her attention to uh, or her thoughtfulness in her process, I think, um, when she considers the human aspects of a theme or a song or um, an event, or, um, she really is looking at the details with a lot of sensitivity. She's considering the emotional contours. She's considering the consequences, the legacy, the impact it might have on a whole range of different people. And I think that um, to an extent, Corrine puts herself through quite a process in um, in her creative work, whether that's you know songwriting, interpreting from tradition, uh, spoken word, theatre work, and and I think that's really it's clear to all of us that there's so much to engage with in her work, but it's crafted so carefully, and I think um, we really wanted to tap into this. We we want to hear more about those ideas, those processes. 
and her experience of her work. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating. I think she's totally the p- perfect person. Yeah, she's to... a hard act to follow in some ways. <laughs> well, let's not say that because we're going to have someone else next year. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I remember our early discussions and I remember what was the, the word that you guys had? Was it, could we have someone, was it provocative or? <laughs> Possibly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really important that we do that, that we don't play it safe in discussions around culture. You know, we, we need to be creative and um, and we, we need to instigate some disagreement because that's when really interesting stuff comes out. Isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, you're doing something wrong if there's if you don't get up somebody's nose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's your philosophy, isn't it, Douglas? Yep. <laughs> I mean, who wants a quiet life? No, no, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so we're really looking forward to it. Um, it's going to be on... Uh, Monday the 10th of May at 8 o'clock, live from St. Cecilia's Hall, which is also quite exciting. Um, And there's also a little bit, what's a nice kind of little dovetailing um, is that the School of Scottish Studies are having their 70th anniversary this year. And connecting in with that is the fact that Mike Vass is going to be doing his own contribution to that show. Um, Can you tell us a wee bit about what Mike's up to? Sure, yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, Mike has been our um, School of Scottish Studies traditional artist in residence for a couple of years now. And of course, it's been very disrupted um, in terms of what we thought his experience would be. Mm. Ideally, he was going to be collaborating with students and joining up different departments in the university to explore. Uh, well, one of his key ideas was um, the ballads, big ballads and ballad stories and how to communicate those in different ways potentially working with animators in the school of art to to really bring them to life and convey the meaning or the layers of meaning in those those brilliant old songs um but that hasn't quite come to fruition yet but he's doing an amazing job working working remotely working digitally and um curating some of our digital events and content so um, but we have sent him back into the archives. Well, not physically, but um, he's collaborating again with Kathleen McCauley. Um, and I think this new work that he's developing for the Rebellious Truth event, at the moment, it seems to be taking inspiration from the photographic archive. Mm. Um, so I'm really interested to see uh, what comes from that. But who knows, it could have changed already since, right. since I last spoke to him. Yeah, so um, he's going to give us a, a performance, including... Uh, a premiere of a new work which is part of his residency fantastic so um yeah it's interesting to talk about the photographs in the archive but um there's all kinds of stuff in there um can you remember when you first discovered it and visited it uh yeah sure i mean i think it's it's always been kind of part of my understanding of you know of the resources that we have in scotland i can't really remember the first time i heard about it um, but the, I mean, I, I'm one of, the, I, I feel, I consider myself fortunate to be part of a generation who had access to, um, a, a great range of tutors and mentors, um, to do with Scottish culture and traditional music, particularly, um, and some of those mentors and 
tutors were involved in the School of Scottish Studies as field workers, as um, folklorists, as teachers. And so I really um, benefited from their knowledge. And um, But it probably took me quite a few years to actually set foot in the building because mm. um, it's number, well, used to be, I think, 47 to 49 George Square. Mm. Um, and, of course, you can't, <laughs> you can't get in at the moment either. But... Yeah. Um, Initially, it wasn't open to the public and now is, um, or it will be again soon. Um, and I think it's quite hard to explain the, the wealth and the volume of material that lies within those, well, that's now one small building. Um, in fact, not all of it's in the building, some of it's still stored elsewhere after the move. But um it has become an incredibly important and inspiring resource for me. And it it took me a long time to get to my current understanding of the different collections that are there. Um, and I'm very much still learning. I'm, I'm only scratching the surface of, of what's there in terms of knowledge and understanding and a, rep- a representation of sorts of our past communities in Scotland Um there's a whole range of material. And did you find anything about, I know that you are from the borders, did you find particular things that were particularly of interest to you from your kind of home area? Yeah, yeah, um, we do. There, There's some great materials in the School of Scottish Studies archives that relate to the borders, both in terms of um, just descriptions of life in different, um, different periods. Um, different modes of work, farm work, local and civic celebrations, uh, the ball game in Jedburgh, um, common riding, riding, uh, riding of the marches and various local festivals. Um, and there's, of course, song and music as well, tunes. Um, but the, I would love to see more material from Borders in terms of my kind of understanding um I grew up in the borders but I wasn't born there I was born in Glasgow Mm -hmm. um and I think there there are recordings from these archives which were um absolutely crucial in gain for me gaining a fuller understanding of local culture in the borders which is really quite varied Mm -hmm. because we don't we don't have a big city in the borders it's lots of kind of medium-sized and small-sized towns and they're quite competitive it's really it's a really interesting you know group of communities to be part of um and particularly you know musically there there's this real there, there's a mix of local identities and friction uh, although humorous now wasn't quite so humorous in the past oh. uh, between these different families and communities um but i think you know to understand my local culture, I had to go beyond what was in the School of Scottish Studies archive. So like any archive, it, it has limits mm-hmm. and it has, um, there's more to do, I think, is the main message. And although our brilliant archivists and the staff there are working flat out, doing as much as they can, and there's new submissions coming in all the time, new recordings, fieldwork recordings, photographs, artefacts, um. The, the job will never be done yeah. and so I think for Borders traditional music we're, we're reliant on some other sources as well mm. as what we have in those archives. But I think we're going to hear a wee song though that you found there 
possibly by one of uh, Douglas's uh, ancestors, as he is a Scot <laughs> from the borders. I would love to find out more about that connection. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so Willie Scott is a one of my favourite singers, and uh, I didn't meet Willie, but we were so so fortunate that um, I think it was Francis Collinson who first came across him. He was out doing um, field trips to the borders, collecting songs. And Willie Scott um, learned a lot of songs from his mother. And it was Alison McMorland's work with Willie Scott, which um, really opened up his his singing and his repertoire to me. Um, Alison produced a really beautiful book about Willie Scott, his songs and some information on the songs. and. Um, his accent, which I think his his Scots is uh, Liddesdale Scots, I think, um, really really broad Scots um, in his singing, and um, actually it was where, as someone who grew up and spent the majority of their childhood and teenage years in the borders, I still didn't know how to pronounce all the all the place names. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually learn some of that from Willie Scott's singing, and his songs range from. Um, ones that are again connected with local civic festivals and common riding and historical events um, through to uh, really beautiful, tragic, sad love songs um, and you can really hear his mother's repertoire represented there so um, this particular recording is an extract from an old riding ballad um, called Jamie Telfer or the Fair Dodd and as far as we know this was the first recorded tune for this ballad Um, until Willie Scott was recorded singing it we didn't know what the tune was because um, there has been a tradition for centuries of separating ballads uh, ballad texts from their tunes and it took took quite a long time to understand how important the relationship between text and melody was which, of course, there's a lot of work being done on that now. But this is uh, Jamie Telfer of the Fair Dodd War and what a hardening his sons And guard them right for the waterside War and gaudillens and allen how And gilman's cliff and common side as he pass the yet oppressed oh, swire warn the courier o oh, the lee and as he come down the hermit each lock warn dochty willie o oh, gore and berry uh, well done, Willie. That was great. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Laurie, for talking to us. We look forward to seeing you at uh, Rebellious Truth on the 10th of May at 8 o'clock live stream. Everyone, don't be late. So next up, we're going to hear from Laura Beth Salter of The She, um, telling us about her lockdown life. Hello, it's Laura Beth here, and I play mandolin and do some of the singing in The She. Um my lockdown life has been a roller coaster, but probably the least interesting and least 
adrenaline fueled roller coaster ever created. <laughs> but I'm guessing there's quite a few of you uh, listening to this that can relate to that. I live here in Glasgow with my husband, Callum McCrimmon, who you can probably hear playing whistle in the background. Um, and for us, we've, from the very outset of the pandemic, we realised we were going to need to be quite creative in how we made sure we had enough work. So we've both kind of, we've made sure that we had good setups for teaching from home and also invested in a bit of recording equipment so that we can uh, share ideas with the bands that we're in. Um, and that's meant that I've been able to continue working with um, our new albums with Canaris Quintet and From the Ground. Um, and now we're starting to develop some new ideas with the She as well. I'm really excited about that um, because this will be the first time since Signe joined the band that we've started writing new material. Uh, at the moment, we're just sharing new tunes and songs um, over Dropbox. Um, but the plan is to hop onto Logic and start layering up some ideas. Um, and luckily, I, I feel quite prepared for that because that's how I've been working with Canaris Quintet. One of the challenges of writing um, is not being able to instantly hear what, that, what the potential of something new is with the band that you're in. Because usually I would take the ideas to a real life rehearsal and we just jam them and, and quite quickly you know if that's something that's going to suit a band or not. So I thought I would involve you, the listeners, in a little bit of our lockdown creative process. Um, here is a tune that I've written called The Torness Street Reel. You'll have been hearing it in the background a little bit there. So I'm just going to let you have a, a listen to the melody. reel with pipe reels in mind particularly the b part that's um, almost just like a, a rhythmic sort of riff um, because i know that as a band we quite enjoy uh, having a go at different chords and riffs and things like that to see how they influence the feeling of a tune um, and how you can kind of carry a tune on a journey using the backing so now i want to play you one of the first ideas and that's come from Amy, who's down in Newcastle, and she's been working on chords, and here is a kind of counter melody that she's written. So this is very much a work in progress, and just an idea that's been bounced around, but you might hear it one day at a she gig when it's finished. So I hope you enjoy this, guys, and uh, everybody take care, and thanks for listening.
thanks very much, Laura Beth. Um, just to say that Signy that she's talking about is Signy Jacob's daughter, who's the new member or the newest member of the She. And the, the lovely tune that she played out with was the Torness Street Rio. Moving on, we're going to hear our Marcia's Fable today from Phil Alexander, who's telling us all about his entry into klezmer music. In Moshe's Bagel, we began by playing klezmer music, so I thought I might just very briefly talk about my own entry into klezmer music. It's nothing I had ever heard of uh, as a kid. I was trained as a classical musician, and then in my teens I started playing a bit of blues, a little bit of jazz, and joining bands and stuff. And I only heard of klezmer when I was about 19 or 20. I was living in Sheffield. I was studying at Sheffield Poly, as it then was. And one of the guys I was living with uh, was a tuba player, tuba and trombone. And he played in a street band. And he came back from a rehearsal one day and I asked him what he'd been playing. And he said, we've been playing klezmer music. And I said, oh yeah, what's that mean? And he said, it's Russian Jewish folk music. And I thought, ooh, <laughs> I like the sound of that. Uh, I, I knew from classical music that I liked Russian music. Uh, I grew up in North London where I, not really any evidence of folk music in my own musical world, but I liked the idea of folk music and I am Jewish, so that kind of appealed to me. It also especially appealed because at that point my musical horizons for Jewish music were probably Hava Nagila and Fiddler on the Roof and the songs that I sang once a year in synagogue and that was it. So the idea that there might be some Jewish music outside of that frame was kind of interesting. So uh, he said, uh, well, I'll play a couple of records. This was the tuba player, Owen. And he had a couple of records by a band, uh, uh, American West Coast Klezmer Revival Band called the Klezmorin. Cool band. They're uh, run by a guy called Lev Lieberman. And they were pretty cool records as well. They had covers by Robert Crumb uh, of uh, old Jewish immigrants arriving in the States. Uh, one was called Streets of Gold and one was called East Side Wedding. And he played me a couple of these tunes and I was instantly hooked. It was uh, an amazing combination of a sort of Eastern sound and uh, a certain technical um, difficulty or level of technicality which appealed to me. Um, very funky rhythms and just loads of soul. And I, I loved it. I was totally hooked from the start. So I took these records away and I played them in my room and I learned all the tunes. In fact, one of the tunes I think we still play today, that's uh, The Silver Wedding. We've been playing that ever since we started. Uh, so I learned this. I didn't play klezmer at that point. I just kind of thought about it. And then a couple of years later, I moved back to London and I started working as a musician. I was working in pizza restaurants and doing jam sessions and things like that. And there was a free ads paper at the time called Loot, where you could look and see if you wanted to find work as a musician or if you just wanted to join a band. And I used to check that out quite a lot. And one day in Loot, there was an ad that said, uh, keyboard player wanted for Jewish wedding band. And I thought, aha. So I rang up and I went round to this flat in Hendon where I met a guy called Freddie Ahari, who was a crazy Egyptian Jew. He was a lovely man, not a great musician. You know what they say, he was a musician and a really lovely guy. <laughs> um, so uh, we, Freddie took me on. And we played, we didn't get many gigs, but we played a little bit. And then well, I learned a few tunes from Freddie and I had a good time. And then one day I got a call from him and he was kind of breathless with excitement. He said, Phil, 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 you need to come around. You need to come around to my flat right now. 
And I said, okay, what is it? He said, I have an audition with the greatest uh, klezmer Russian band leader in London and he's going to take me on and he's going to give me lots of work, lots of jobs and you need to come and accompany me. So, you know, ever eager to please, I went round to Freddie's place and in his small front room was this guy, a Russian guy. Um, he was called Gregory Schechter. He was dressed all in black. He had a black shiny black shoes on and very well-pressed black trousers and a black leather jacket I think he had a black cap on as well and he was a very good-looking man he was a very kind of angry looking man as well he was frowning furiously and he was smoking fiercely the whole way through and we played a little bit together and me and Freddie we played for Gregory and after about a minute Gregory cut us off and he said, no, I'm sorry, this is, this is not what I want. I don't want to hear this. I, uh, Freddy, I'm sorry, I have wasted your time and I've wasted my own time, but I'm not going to take you on. And then he looked at Freddy and he pointed at me and he said, but will you permit me to take the phone number of your piano player? And so Freddy was, you know, ever the gentleman. He said, OK, so he handed, my, handed Greg my phone number. And then about two weeks later, I got a call. Um, and it was from Gregory and he had a gig at the South Bank uh, at the Queen Elizabeth Hall um, you know so moderately big deal and his piano player had let him down and he said could I do the gig and he was going to pay me 200 quid which compared to the 30 quid and a pizza I was getting at uh, Pizza Pomodoro was uh, you know that was a big money so I went and did the gig and then stayed working with Gregory for about five or six years and uh, learned we had a great time we played regularly we played you know uh, every week often twice on Sundays um, played weddings bar mitzvahs uh, festivals concerts anything that was going really and I learned a lot about klezmer music I also learned about how to be in a band how to kind of stay light on your feet and how to interact with people musically and be with people musically over a long period of time so uh, I'm very grateful to that and I, I stayed with Gregory more or less until we moved up to Edinburgh in 2002. I had no intention of uh, playing Klezma when I got up here but that's probably another story. Thanks very much Phil Alexander. So next up we listen in a chat between two great fiddlers from the Scottish tradition Laura Wilkie and from the English tradition Sam Sweeney. Hi, it's Sam Sweeney, um, and for the next half hour or so, uh, you're going to be listening to a lovely chat that I had with a fiddle player that I admire enormously, um, the fabulous Laura Wilkie. Uh, and the other day we sat down and actually chatted for about two hours uh, about music and fiddle music, where we come from, uh, and a lot of other things as well. I've managed to edit it down to about half an hour um, the fiddle playing that you'll hear uh, during the conversation is the result of a challenge that I set for Laura to play uh, a traditional English tune, which is called Nobody's Jig from Playford's Dancing Master. And you'll also hear me attempting to play a traditional Scottish tune called Willie McRae's. So thank you for listening. Uh, have a wonderful uh, Tradfest um, and hopefully see you all at some point soon.
how yeah in your um music mm. how important would you say like your home influences are like in the music that you make and yeah yeah do you do you consider yourself to be like an english fiddle player and um, yeah i i love this question and like we could have you know a whole day on it um and i i really like talking to people about it um not because i'm uh like interested in any way about about sort of like what national identity is yeah. and how that connects and how that connects to people's music but like so i was doing an interview for radio four about my last record and the producer said to me uh so it's an album of, of mostly traditional uh english tunes and some tunes that i wrote and when i kind of arranged it and put it together i consciously tried to stay well clear of anything that people would consider to be like an English folk stereotype in terms of the aesthetic or the sound. Um, and but the producer of the show who's saying, well, Sam, this this al album just sounds so unbelievably English. Can you tell us why? Um, <laughs> and like I was sort of it's really, really easy to say as an English musician uh, what English music isn't. But right. it's really hard to say like what it is. So from where I am, and I, I think I well I said to you earlier on like I I know embarrassingly little about about trad music from from other countries like. But you know it's it's really easy to say well this music I'm making is quite clearly not from Ireland or Scotland or France or Sweden or North America. Um, but it's really hard to tell people what it actually is because well in england there's, there's absolutely no perception in the sort of general public that there is traditional music of any description the 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 the, the automatic assumption when you when people meet me and ask, ask you know what i do and i say i play the fiddle then they presume i'm playing irish music because that is the most well-known traditional music in the world right um i didn't i mean do you is that you understand that to be kind of we say that i mean like you know even in things like braveheart they use irish pipes you know and it's a song by scotland so yeah yeah right and i mean i've played in inverted commas i've played scottish fiddle on a couple of films and some tv stuff in the past which is crazy um like a film i did last year and it was like they wanted a scottish fiddle player and i made very very clear that that's not what i really don't do that like i i wish i could but i don't know anything about it but they still hired me you know what i mean um because it's it's just focus all just one massive thing for 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 a lot of these people but yeah like back to your question yeah i i i consider myself to be an english fiddle player an english folk musician because my entire frame of reference is from one of of, of being english like it, it is what i am but also kind of and i'd love to know how you feel about this like from a a, a position of like being able to actually move in side the music like wear it like an old coat and be like i'm at home in this music because nobody can tell me that i'm doing doing it wrong basically right totally it's and like, like does that resonate with you at all so much i mean i think i don't know i think um maybe i was listening to having a conversation with do you, i don't know if you're familiar with uh jock duncan he was like a uh, one of the like original like tradition bearers of like bothy ballads and you know like he actually like worked on the farm on the farms and like sang mm -hmm. all the bothy songs and um 
you know, he speaks as he sings, you know, it's like really Doric. Yeah. And like, I remember, I can't remember who it was, I was what the context was, but somebody said, like, that is untouchable. Like, you can't, um, it's like inv invaluable, it's so authentic that like, yeah. You can, it, you can only be it you can't um it's unexploitable un or something I can't remember exactly what the words were I really wish because it was such a well put sentence and it just it made it made me like think about what I do and um what we all do but how how you know because authenticity all is like obviously supposed to be like the the easiest thing and and I realized like for a long time that I'd been looking elsewhere like up to other traditional music cultures and things for inspiration because I I was not feeling like connecting like I was connecting with Scottish music that much mm -hmm. particularly like traditional music there was like everything I I knew about Scottish music at that kind of formative time when I was like thinking about what am I why do I? all the ego questions I guess the big questions <laughs> like why am I doing this um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I was like, wow, I'm really like, I felt a lot of connection to like old time music in America. And I was like, why do I, why, you know? Yeah. And why am I not able to play like, like these amazing Scottish fiddle players that were like, and I, you know, like all these different ornaments and stuff. And I just couldn't, I practiced like all the time. <laughs> and yeah. like, I just, it wouldn't, it just didn't feel natural. I felt it felt like such an effort, and I don't know. I felt like fake, fake kind of. And then actually, kind of only recently, um, like in, a few years ago, I had this amazing singer Josie Duncan. I don't know if you know her. Um, she set up a song session, and uh, I went along to that not to sing, just to kind of listen because it was really near my flat, and um, and I just love love songs. <laughs> And uh, it was really nice. And I took my fiddle a few times and um, I just found like, because I love playing with singers. I just love like finding spaces in in between lyrics. Like quite often there'd be like a few Gaelic singers come um, and sing like either pushed songs like mouth music tunes or other types of songs like sometimes slow songs like laments and things or um like walking songs and work songs I felt so and I was I don't know like the melodies are really simple um n the words are not simple so like the rhythms within like this simple melody is not mm. um and I am not a Gaelic speaker but for some reason I felt like really I don't know drawn to them my my granny was a Gaelic speaker um but didn't really speak it mm -hmm. um, or teach my mum or whatever but um anyway I found <laughs> over lockdown actually I kind of dug into that part of Scottish culture and even though I'm not a speaker I feel really connected to it and it kind of makes sense because I learned a bunch of that music when I was very young like mm -hmm. it was just that face and um kind of in, in the classes and we all had to learn these songs and I don't know and since then like like you're saying I feel like feel a bit like I maybe shouldn't wear it because I'm not a speaker but it feels comfortable um yeah I believe I don't know I it, this maybe sounds weird but it's like <laughs> <maybe> <laughs> 
pretentious. I believe it. Like I, I don't know. It just sounds like yeah. I get, I don't know. I feel connected to it, and it is Scottish, and it's of the land, and I feel like maybe that's okay. Like I feel like a Scottish fiddle player now, uh-huh. more so than um, than than I did. But I had to like go away from it to to see that or to feel it yeah yeah um if that i think that answers it no um, it does it's actually on like because i have found myself in the last few years uh and it does happen quite a lot because i mean there's a thing rob harbron always says and i think chris would probably said it before him but like when i was a kid learning and they were all saying to me like tunes don't carry passports and it's certainly in english collections you get tunes from scotland and ireland and you know, yeah. and then you get those really well-known tunes and people sort of fight over them as to where they're from. And like, for me, it's not actually important where they're from. Like, I feel able to move into music that was collected here. Right. But like in the last few years, like I have found myself, like even professionally playing tunes that are Scottish. Only this morning I was playing a tune that is apparently quite well-known and Scottish, but I found it in an English book. And to me because my frame of reference is what it is like just playing that tune I already felt totally able to move into that tune but if you played it at me I mean I don't know if you know it and I also can't at the moment remember the name of it but if you if you played it at me you know I don't you would play it completely different right but I'm probably playing it like an English person even though from all the stuff I can find online about it which was a few months ago it is definitely a Scottish tune right interesting because i heard you play the battle of the somme on a, on that really oh yeah yeah like that's one of my favorite tunes from when i was really young ever and i was yeah me too <laughs> like to hear it on 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 an inverted comments like english fiddle players yeah yeah and um yeah i didn't think that you sounded like not I don't know, like it didn't sound inauthentic because of course it didn't, but like it yeah. it was it it resonated. Um and <laughs> that was really beautiful. Thanks. Yeah, but like that is interesting, isn't it? That it's um Yeah, yeah. It is interesting for sure. And like there, there are other pipe tunes on that record, like a lot of the tunes that I researched for this first world war album that I did, you know, there are tunes that are written in this it's this collection called The Pipes of War. Yeah. And like I don't know anything about pipe music really, and all the tunes were written with, you know, all those nuts, really yeah. in detail ornaments and stuff. I to, can't, I can't read tried. that. Have you tried? I've actually, I was like, I'm gonna do this. There was a point oh, where really? I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play those ornaments. It's completely impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I looked at it and just went, that's there's no way that's gonna sit with the way that I play. <laughs> That was why of you because I was not wise, um, <laughs> but I still felt able to move into them. And like tunes like the Battle of the Somme, I mean that is obviously that is a tune written by a Scottish piper. But I mean that tune has been in England for, for I guess since it was written, right? Since the nineteen when was it written? Like nineteen seventeen or something. The reason I did that tune is because I've always hated. Because uh, hate is such a strong word. I've always loved the tune and profoundly disliked every version I'd ever heard. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's because it was done with like full drum kit and like 
in the kind of folk rock way that I now find to be so sort of abhorrent as a sort of sound palette. Um, so I just wanted to do a thing that made that tune actually say what I think it yeah. should say, as opposed to. Well, like, I feel, you know, similarly, sometimes there would be tunes that I really felt like, ugh, like I, I felt like they were a drag or when I, especially when I was younger learning them. And then, for example, like there's this tune that, um, the pipe band always played in Tain like every Saturday night throughout the summer called the Highland Laddie. It's like most obvious Scottish pipe tune ever. And uh -huh. then I heard Jenna Moynihan play it and I was like, that's it. Oh my God. Like, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. Absolutely. So, um, I, I heard Jenna playing on that American course that I did in December and oh my God, like I'd never heard her play before, but she is incredible she really she plays so much scottish music and like that really inspired me a lot and we had a conversation we did a gig actually that um myself her uh katie mcnally i don't know if you know katie's yeah. main fiddle player but she plays a lot of scottish music and uh louise bichon from artney and then we did this gig with uh anna massey and natalie Haas, and it was like a yeah, because katie and Jenna both have crashed over at mine whenever they've been in, in Glasgow and they both said on occasion like oh, I need to just because they both play Scottish fiddle music and they're like oh, I need to start playing music from where I come from so that I can get more gigs or something you know <laughs> joke but then I was like oh my god like why because I feel like I felt like that at the time too I was like I'm playing old time music and yeah or Scandi music and um why like why do we need to why do we have to you know like yeah. Anna plays better Scottish fiddle than <laughs> and like you know why you know who cares that it's Scottish or you know and it's not American or whatever but it was a funny it's a funny concept isn't it like and mm. yeah it's interesting to to think about like what makes something f feel wearable or like inhabitable um, yeah Totally, totally, totally. You should t totally give me a tune from a Scottish book and I'll give you a tune from an English book. Yeah, let's do that. Because that would be so, honestly, that would be like the most amazing and interesting thing to me. Yeah, totally. Oh my God, that's so exciting. I, I'm think my brain's like... Yeah. as a percentage of the number of tunes you know did you get out of a book and how many did you learn by ear like is it mostly like, by ear or the other way around mostly by ear definitely mostly by ear I couldn't read music until to be honest until I was like about 20 like at, at uni like I don't know how I managed but then I remember being at uni and being like god this is going to be so much easier if I work out how to read so I, I just like 
knuckled down and asked Hamish Napier to help me. Um, mm-hmm. He was like a couple of years ahead of me um, and he he was such a good teacher. And now it's way better because I can like communicate with people. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, and learn things from books. So now I can do your challenge, basically. Yeah, exactly. So you can learn, a, you can play a, play a tune from an English book. But I think the difference, the, probably the main difference is I reckon that 80% of the tunes I know I did get from books because there's no, there's no oral tradition here, really. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, you can't, and this is only my experience, people will probably shout at me for saying this, but like, you can't go to a session in England and expect to know the repertoire. Like, right. Because there's no there's no core repertoire. Like everybody will know, like Princess Royal and <laughs> uh, like three around three, and like th- there's no core repertoire. So you could you if you go to a, a pub session in Sheffield and then a pub session in Exeter, they're not going to be you're not going to know anything. In my in my experience of going to sessions, so like basically the whole thing again in my experience of being a musician playing English music is that you actually have to be able to read music because you've got to go into books okay. otherwise you you don't find any oh, oh my god it's really cool that you're record making recordings of all of them <laughs> but that's really great because it's like nurturing the culture for other people to 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 make their own I guess and um, yeah. yeah we're so lucky with that in Scotland although um I'd say that before sessions completely stopped, um, like most of the tunes that you would get at a session, I mean, with exception, but like most of the tunes that you get would probably have been written in the last kind of 20 years. Oh, um, really? Yeah, especially in Glasgow. I feel like maybe that's a bit different um, regionally. Like mm-hmm. in the Northeast, there's lots of like competition style fiddle players that play lots of like Scott Skinner stuff and um and all that and then um like in the west in the west highlands you get like loads of pipe music loads of gallic uh like pierce songs and and fiddle repertoire um Mm -hmm. it's so rich like everywhere and it's so different so i i there's probably play more more of the old old tunes like out with the central bell um and that's really interesting but and it's cool because it means that the tradition is like you know um evolving and still being um you know the car- the carrying stream is uh, in 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 flow but um but also it means that it's quite homogenous and i feel like i think that that's why i felt at the time like i wasn't connecting to any of it because it was so like a specific sound yeah, got you. And so, yeah. and But now that I realise that, like, actually there's a wealth of recordings and different subcategories of Scottish music everywhere that, you know, you don't have to just look at the, the cool session repertoire. Not there's anything wrong with the cool session repertoire. Great tunes and they're, they're popular for a reason, right? So Yeah, um, totally. Because uh, they're, they're good. But, um, but is it, it maybe... Um, like the sound of like something that is Scottish or is not in a national again like not in a like nationalistic way yeah Um, it's cool that the thing is evolving but also it's cool to have like specific sounds that are sounds of a land or a place or Mm. a time so Mm. that you can learn from that time or Mm. or that place and and um 
you know, it just makes your palette, like you're saying, like it makes your palette broader. And, you know, diversity equals everything, you know, like it, it's the key, isn't it? It's like, yeah, everything will just sound the same and everything will just blend into everything. So, yeah. But actually, diversity doesn't mean the homogenizing of everything. No, it doesn't. I find it totally nuts that, you know, if you just because you have, for example, you know, like if we made a trio like me, me, an English fiddle player, you, a Scottish fiddle player and a, and a, and a fiddle player from Sweden, like it doesn't mean that the result will be a horrible, uh, it, it doesn't mean it will detract from the three different things. Oh, totally. Um, but there is a, I think there is a sort of feeling that, that in certain parts of the trap world, anyway, that, that would be the case, and you have to keep things pure. And then, like, and then it just becomes like this idea of like, when on earth are you drawing your funny line in the in right. the sand? You know, with with music. I mean, particularly in English music, we haven't got any. Uh, if you want to play English fiddle music, we haven't got any recordings of English fiddle players. Like, maybe we have twenty five recordings, and they're all lovely but really dreadful like delving into these source recordings of people who who couldn't really frankly play so super because they were 80 years old and they you know and and they did they did what they did but it was very much repertoire from that time and all all the tunes i'm playing are like older than 250 years old kind of thing so like we don't know how to play any of this stuff so if you combine the fact that we have no frame of reference on of how to play the fiddle in england alongside the fact that we've never and again maybe shout shout at me people listening i don't know but like we've never really had a, a great english fiddle player in in my opinion like we don't have any role models are yeah like role models who are we going to look up to you know there are some amazing ones and chris wood is definitely my not that he plays the fiddle anymore but he he did a lot of amazing stuff on the fiddle and then people like eliza carthy and stuff i used to love her fiddle playing so much when i was a teenager and people like john bowden as well but it's a very specific thing that they did and if you want to play tunes from the 18th century or before we don't know how to do it so um I just love the fact that we don't know how to play English music at all and we're really essentially making it up. But, uh, you know, by the same token, I'm really envious of people from countries where you do have this incredibly rich wealth of tradition and regional style and like banks of repertoire and recordings and stuff where you can go, I'm going to play like where I'm from. Because if I want to play like I'm from the East Midlands, it's not a thing. You there's yeah. no there's nothing like literally nothing. <laughs> That's so so funny. But yeah, I suppose then at least then you don't have like purists, or well, maybe you do because we what? do. <laughs> <laughs> they're purists that are like they're looking at a very very small band of time. Yeah. I think. Right. Okay. Okay. Fair. So because that's all there has been then that's what they that's what is deemed to be correct and the, the way to to treat to treat um english music or as a fiddle player right is that what you is that kind of what you mean essentially yeah i guess i mean there are players now who are still alive or recently died who are sort of deemed to be the last remaining actual traditional fiddle players kind of thing um and we're talking about a very small handful of people from the south of england um but like you know it's 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 really like it's repertoire from a very minute specific period of time whereas the vast majority if you go and buy an english tune book 
the vast majority of it will be from the 18th century. Wow. Uh, that is that is the biggest body of, of tunes we've got is 18th century. So, um, yeah, we don't know how to play. Where do you think um, the fiddle scene in England is kind of going? Do you think that there's like an appetite for young players, like for researching or looking into like those kind of archives, like like you're doing? Um, mm. Do you think you know? How do you feel that that the the scene is and like what what do you think that like young people are enjoying about playing traditional music and on the fiddle or not i think it's it is a really exciting time here for sure um i think we're we're decades and decades and decades behind a lot of other places um in that you know i used to go to folkworks summer schools in durham when i was a kid um, and I'm not complaining at all, like they were the best weeks of my life. Um, but like one year you'd have a Danish teacher and then the next year you'd have a Norwegian teacher and then you'd have an American teacher, then you'd have a Scottish teacher. And, you know, I didn't meet English music till I was 16, 17, whatever. So um, it's still really hard for young people to encounter English music in England, really hard. Um, but like the thing that happened a few years ago here with the National Youth Folk Ensemble, which I ran for three years, um it was it was it's totally brand new like teenagers have never played english music here um and the thing that i was absolutely adamant about and i thought it was i guess a little contentious really because the organization the english folk dance and song society like when i interviewed for the job they could have gone no absolutely not but i was really really keen that young people were able to make this music their own and treat it as if you like a little box of treasure in their garden as opposed to the bible um, because as far as i was concerned like if we were to go in and go this is english music this is how you play it then you're not giving any agency or or whatever or autonomy to these young musicians and then that's no way to start something (laughs) do you know what i mean express yourself then yeah Yeah, you have to you have to enable people to express something and like the fact the fact that some of them will never play a note of traditional music ever again when they've left is totally cool with me like you know it was basically about getting young people to communicate through the language of music the fact that it was traditional by and large uh, is kind of incidental yeah for me you know um so if you'd asked me like five years ago how the the scene was the fiddle scene or the track or sort of the instrumental scene if you like in england um i would say it was pretty poor like slash non-existent really um but there are there really really are now some quite a lot of young people you know people under the age of 20 um who are making amazing music and like actually getting you know, diving into the Village Music Project, which is this great website with all these English manuscripts, and like just turning stuff upside down and making their own thing out of it. So I think something really cool is starting, but it is only just starting. Like if we had a face equivalent here, you would not get 83 young people <laughs> along to it. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, well, the face by that time, you know, like it had been going since the 90s to me, but yeah, maybe that revival or renaissance of of mm. like young people being engaged with traditional music yeah maybe it's like a little bit of time ahead of 
but it's really cool and actually I remember like one of the highlights of probably of like playing music in my life or like being around music or musicians ever was like when I was at Cambridge Folk Festival we watched your your group of of the youngins oh yeah yeah they were amazing like the arrangements were amazing they were playing with like so much like you know confidence and they were all like having a laugh together and like there was there wasn't like this not not that they weren't um respectful to the music but like there was it was like completely irreverent and like just Mm. full of like energy and yeah fun and joy and sounded so good like their technical ability of everyone on the stage was like just yeah. and they were playing with you know like such dynamic playing and yeah and they you know we, I met some of them after after their after your gig and mm. um, just totally blown away and just like also the 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 mixture of different different instruments and like loads of girls playing music and like you know, it was just really, like, made me really hopeful. <laughs> <laughs> As you do get older, like, are you finding simpler tunes more joyous, do you find? Or? So much more. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Like, because I feel like I'm maybe getting a bit better technically if I keep, pra- you know, like, when I go through bursts of practising a lot. Yeah, like, there's just so much more space for... Mm. For you. <laughs> know just for like nuance yeah like that's like really fast tunes I'm like okay cool but like where's what is the phrase like what is what what's what we're trying to say here Um, and so that's why I was like well it doesn't really matter if I can't speak Gaelic because I I think I can I think I know what it's saying (laughs) because there's more lyricism in it and it feels like a story thanks Thanks for having me, Sam. It's been so lovely to talk to you. Thank you so, so much. Yeah. Um, Okay. Have a fun tried this, everyone. Thanks, Sam and Laura. That uh, playing at the end was Sam doing a Scottish tune, Willie McRae's. Fantastic job. Now we're going on to a bit of light relief at the end. Uh, Struggle Story by James McIntosh. Three Sugar Nifty days, proto Sugar Nifty in Madrid. And me and Mark, Mark Angus and I, had done our thing and we'd been staying in this tiny little flat with um, which is owned by two friends friends of ours Angus Mark and I were sleeping in the living room in this tiny wee apartment in a kind of pretty working class area of Madrid and we felt like we're sort of we'd been busking in wee bars and everything and having a great time but we kind of felt we're slightly getting under there just you know, outstaying our welcome a wee bit, maybe, or we should give them some space. So we decided to go to a nearby town and we took a t- couple of days. We got a bus to a wee town called Cuenca. We took some recommendations. Um, did you take the bus or we took the bus to Cuenca? The bus to Cuenca. Aye. Which is, I don't know, a couple of hours south of Madrid. 
and it's a really spectacular wee kind of medieval town built into the cliffs because it's like the plateau of Spain starts lowering there and all the cliffs there's lots of ravines and things and the town is really beautiful and it's, it's kind of a lot of the apartments are built into the stone and it, it's very spectacular and we booked into a wee pensione the three of us and uh, of course we went out for some tapas and food and then we thought oh well we'll have a drink of course so here's a wee bar nothing special nothing too spectacular looking very empty and we walked in and we sat up at the bar the three of us and we had our instruments and the hombre the guy said uh, si si tres cerveza por favor we're getting pretty good at our Spanish by then and then we thought well let's go for a wander let's go off to another bar you know this is okay a couple of people had come into the bar but it wasn't exactly stowed out and so we, we asked for La Quinta and asked to pay for the drinks and the guy was like no 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 like no 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 we'd like to pay please no 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 and he he produced these three glasses and two large bottles of indistinct liquid and proceeded to make three cocktails we're like no 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 dude we're we've got that slightly uncomfortable feeling that we're being about to be fleeced and he's taken advantage of some giris well like, no 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 we just want to pay for the beers and he's no no problem no problem for you 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 have this and so he poured i've no idea what it was he poured these three drinks then he set fire to them and demonstrated drinking them through a straw okay you know why not so uh we knocked these three drinks back i think there was we had one of them each and then we're like okay now we'll go we'll pay you he said no 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 he wouldn't take our money and then he um he made another three of these drinks so we had another another hit of these drinks each but this time the bar was getting quite busy and we figured out he was keeping us in the bar because we were attracting custom <laughs> because we obviously you know there's a, a fiddler a guitarist and someone with a big case anyway i think we had a tune and uh we're playing away and this this other fella comes up and he's like ah you must you guys you must come with me now and we're like what do you mean he said come to my bar and i show you my bar you will play in my bar we're like well we're playing in this bar he said no but tomorrow you will play in my bar but i show you my bar and he drove us up through these windy streets in cuenca and uh, took us into this enormous place it seemed to me at the time vast kind of labyrinth of tunnels like a nightclub like the arches but bigger i remember lots of arches and brick and he showed us the stage and he said tomorrow manana you play here we're like uh okay i don't know if there's any kind of negotiation we didn't discuss pa we didn't discuss any amplification or whatever and sure enough the next the place like literally there were hundreds of people in this place and all we had was the fiddle the guitar and my tom and not one mic was there a mic it was the one we practiced uh, guitar amp. Oh, yeah. I played the guitar through. That was yeah. all he had. So we played our, our set and, you know, the cash and goodness knows what else. So <laughs> Vivaldi. And the place went absolutely bonkers. Lovely. And this guy, I just remember, it's the only time we've been compared favourably to the Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> ah, you, you guys, you guys, and Ross, Los Rollings. Sugar Nifty, he Los Rollings. The best. 
So that was fabulous. Why is it all the shiggle stories involve, involve copious amounts of alcohol somehow? Idea. So um, we're just going to wrap things up now. So we need to thank Laurie Watson, Dr. Laurie Watson, Laura Beth Salter, Phil Alexander, Laura Wilkie and James McIntosh. With a special thanks to Sam Sweeney for putting together the, the chat with Laura Wilkie. Thanks very much. Coming up tomorrow on show eight, we have Evie Layden and Keith Terry all the way from California and a day in the life of Dive. Don't miss it. See you then. Bye. Bye. Edinburgh Tradfest podcast is produced and presented by Douglas Robertson and Jane Ann Purdy with the help of our hugely capable engineer, Dave Kay. The theme tune, Silence of the Trams, is by Angus R. Grant, performed and arranged by Sugar Lifty. Information on all our guests and the music played is listed on our website, edinburghtradfest.com. Huge thanks to our funders, Creative Scotland and... The William Grant Foundation, makers of Glenfiddich and other wonderful things. Please rate, review and subscribe to Edinburgh Tradfest podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Apparently that helps other people find it. Thanks very much.